Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 233, Urban the 8th. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So if last week we had a relatively brief papacy, today we have a long one, in fact the 10th longest in history, and one which is also particularly consequential. Today's pope was born Maffeo Barberini, the son of a relatively well-to-do merchant family from Florence. He was born on April 5th, 1568 in Florence. His father passed away when Maffeo was still fairly young, and his education was entrusted to his uncle, who was a priest in Rome and who later named Maffeo his successor and heir. He studied first in Florence with the Jesuits, then in Rome at the Roman College, also with the Jesuits, and then he was received a doctorate in Pisa in law. His uncle used his influence and his cash, frankly, in Rome to get Maffeo positions of import in the Roman Curia, and he began to rise through the ecclesiastical ranks. In 1593, his uncle retired from his own position in favor of Maffeo, giving him more prestige and influence in Rome. He entered the service of Cardinal Pietro Aldo Brandini, and he accompanied him on several diplomatic missions. And eventually, he became a specialist in actually hydrological surveying. Believe it or not, a couple of times, Maffeo was sent to survey how much man-made changes in rivers would affect local topography and local issues. And if they wanted to drain this marsh, what would happen if they blocked up this river and all these other different things. So it's not necessarily a job you think when you think about a rising papal bureaucrat, but believe it or not, he was into hydrography. His uncle died when he was 30, and Maffeo then inherited a rather large fortune from him, which helped him to continue his rise in Rome. In October of 1601, he got his first really big break by being appointed nuncio to France by Pope Clement VIII. His task was to deliver gifts and to congratulate the King of France for the birth of his son, the future King Louis XIII. After this mission, he was appointed the titular Archbishop of Nazareth, And then a couple years later, the normal representative in the French court, a position he continued in over three papacies, and which enabled him to maintain excellent relationships with the King of France, Henry IV. It was Henry IV who used some influence to promote Barberini. He asked the Pope, Pope Paul V, to be the godfather of his new son. And since the Pope couldn't come in person, he asked that Barberini represent him in the right. And if he was going to represent the Pope in this way, he should probably be be a cardinal. That's the only really fitting representative that would work. And so Barberini was created a cardinal on September 11th, 1606. The red hat was sent to Paris, where the king himself put it on the new cardinal's head. When he finally returned to Rome in 1607, Barberini was named the Bishop of Spoleto, where, because of the decrees of the Council of Trent, he had to move so that he could actually reside in his diocese and do pastoral work as a bishop. But this isn't really what he wanted to do. He was much more interested in kind of climbing the ladder in Rome. And so not long afterwards, in 1611, he was named the papal ambassador to Bologna. And then he returned again to his diocese after that was over. But in 1617, he resigned as Bishop of Spoleto so that he could come back to Rome and work more actively in the Roman Curia, where he was a member of a number of commissions over the years. He was a fairly wealthy cardinal, and he used that wealth to further the patronage of the arts, a practice which would continue in his papacy. And at the same time, he became interested in academic and literary pursuits, and he took up writing poems and hymns in Latin about the lives of the saints. His poems weren't that great. They were decent. People wanted to hear them because a cardinal had written them, but they weren't the best, but more on that later. In 1623, Pope Gregory XV died, and Cardinal Barberini entered the conclave without too many adversaries. But the conclave was divided between major Roman families, and eventually... No one really got a majority. 
And for a couple of weeks, there was this total standstill. And we've seen this thing before. After a couple of weeks of standstill, the Cardinals look for a compromise. And Barberini was that compromise choice that everyone could get behind. On August 6, 1623, he was elected Pope, and he took the name Urban VIII. Now, some speculated it's because of a desire to recall the crusading Pope Urban II. It's not quite clear why he chose that name. Some think because of his love for the city of Rome, the urban city. The conclave itself was pretty rough. I've said this before, but there's a church historian who calls August the dying month in Rome, and at least eight cardinals in the conclave contracted malaria and died within months. The new pope himself was sick, but he managed to make it through his bout with malaria and would go on to serve as pope for 21 years, the 10th longest in history, as I mentioned earlier. Now, the first thing on his plate was the Jubilee year of 1625, and the new pope was a great patron of the arts and a vigorous and demanding leader. He threw himself into the work for preparing for the Jubilee, and he spent a lot of money refurbishing the ancient churches of Rome, and he directed the cardinals to do the same thing with their own titular churches. When the Jubilee came, he enthusiastically took part. He heard confessions of the people as they came into St. Peter's, and it was a, a big success. The most lasting product of the Pope's patronage of the arts was the interior of St. Peter's Basilica. The architect he hired was a very young man named Gian Lorenzo Bernini. Pope Urban VIII's pontificate really marks the completion of the basilica. It's been 120 years since Julius II first hired the architect Bramante to build this massive new church, and now it's finally finished. The design was changed over time, and the new basilica was so large that it was hard to see the main altar in the tomb of St. Peter's when you walked in, especially after they had extended the nave out, like we heard in Pope Paul V's pontificate. And so the Pope commissioned Bernini to build a massive bronze baldacchino, which looks like a giant canopy, over the main altar. Now, the baldacchino took time to build, but the basilica was basically completed by 1626, when Pope Urban VIII officially consecrated it. At the same time that he was improving the city of Rome artistically, he was also strengthening it militarily. He improved some fortifications around Rome, more on that later. He built up supplies of munitions, etc. And to do that, he needed bronze, bronze to make the giant baldacchino, of course, and also bronze to make cannonballs. And it so happened that there was a lot of ancient bronze sitting around at the entrance to the Pantheon in Rome. So he took it and he turned it into cannonballs. Couldn't use it apparently for the baldacchino because it wouldn't have been strong enough or pure enough to support all the weight that the baldacchino has. But he used it for a less artistic purpose, which is these, you know, cannonballs. And that prompted the Romans saying that whatever the barbarians didn't do to Rome, the Barberinis did. The new pope was strong, both in will and body. He was a polymath. He knew he was smart, and his management style was often very much top down. Now, he worked hard for the church, but he also worked very hard to promote his family, and his nepotism was certainly on the egregious side. He named a couple of family members cardinals, but he also promoted family interests about Rome. There's different calculations that historians have made about how wealthy his family got, and one calculation said that over 150 million scudi were accumulated by the Barberini family over the time of his papacy. His Vigor also translated into the military side. He was the last pope to militarily increase the territory of the papal states. But the biggest thing you probably know about Pope Urban VIII's papacy was the controversy surrounding the astronomer Galileo Galilei. Galileo had come onto the scene in the previous papacy advocating for the Copernican system of astronomy, the system that we know now today where the planets rotate around the sun, or the heliocentric model. Now, the caricature of this controversy is that you've 
probably heard, paints the noble scientist Galileo combating ignorant and backwards religious fanatics in Rome, who eventually put him to death by burning him at the stake. This is a creation, and it's a creation of later anti-religious historians. The actual events are much more nuanced and complicated. Galileo's theories were based on his observations of celestial movement with his new telescope, and they were variously accepted or rejected by the scientific community at the time. One major supporter of Galileo early on was the Cardinal Maffeo Barberini before he was elected Pope Urban VIII. The two met in Florence and corresponded, and the then Cardinal Barberini was a huge fan. Galileo's observations and theories were not, however, universally accepted, but nor were they universally rejected by church authorities. The Jesuits in Rome confirmed some of his observations with their own observations, and many were sympathetic to them too, and his whole theory. Copernicus himself was a priest, the one who first came up with the heliocentric theory. But other scientists and natural philosophers who were much more invested in the old geocentric or Ptolemaic system reported Galileo to the Inquisition as being contrary to scripture. His works were first examined by St. Robert Bellarmine, who his problem with them wasn't necessarily the scriptural or the theological, but the scientific. He, he didn't think Galileo had enough scientific proof to change the whole way we look at the solar system. But he wasn't all-out condemning of him either. The others were much more vehemently opposed to him, and in 1616, he went before the Roman Inquisition. Cardinal Barberini tried to protect him, but was unable to do so, and Galileo was ordered to stop publishing about the Copernican system. Cardinal Barberini, however, decided to write a poem in praise of Galileo after his condemnation and continued to support his friend. So when Cardinal Barberini was elected Pope Urban VIII, Galileo dedicated his next book to him and wrote him sincere congratulations on his election. He then went and visited the new Pope. In fact, he had six different audiences with him, which is a huge number. And the Pope encouraged Galileo to write a work in which he compared the various systems of astronomy without getting in the way of the Inquisition. The Pope gave him a couple of guidelines which would help him to do that and basically supported and encouraged Galileo to write what would become his Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. Now, in this dialogue, Galileo showed a biting and sarcastic sense of humor. He situates the dialogue as a conversation between three different characters that he created. There was a very educated philosopher who was, of course, on the side of heliocentrism. There was an impartial character, but he was really witty and oftentimes ended up siding with the heliocentric side. And then there was a character that he called Simplicius, who upheld geocentrism. Now, the whole dialogue depicts Simplicius as basically an idiot, and that's what his name, Simplicius, means in Latin. And the other two characters are basically talking circles around him. Now, when the Pope, after reading a draft or hearing about a draft, asked that a couple more of his own arguments be included, Galileo did include them, but he put them in the mouth of Simplicius, basically calling the Pope an idiot. The Pope then, you know, obviously turned on Galileo, and the Inquisition, which the Pope no longer really held back, put his dialogue on the list of forbidden books. Galileo himself was put under house arrest, but his local bishop encouraged him to continue his scientific research, and he was never burned at the stake. It wasn't the best look for the church, but it certainly is a much more complex situation than that which we regularly hear from history books. Which brings us to another major historical event, which is the continuation of the Thirty Years' War. The war continued for Pope Urban VIII's entire papacy. His papacy started with complex negotiations over southern Switzerland. If you remember from the end of last episode, Pope Gregory XV had negotiated a peace there between Catholic and Protestant sides and had sent papal troops there as peacekeepers. But France 
started to kind of turn against the papal situation. There was a new force in French politics, the great and Machiavellian Cardinal Richelieu. Richelieu brought the French into the Thirty Years' War on the side of the Protestants, even though the French were a Catholic nation, because he wanted to defeat the Habsburg family in Spain and in the empire. And he showed this in the conflict in southern Switzerland by sending French troops in to take control of the area, forcing out the papal troops. Pope Urban VIII, having spent a lot of time in the French court, was actually sympathetic to the French, and they settled the situation in southern Switzerland pretty quickly in a way that was both amenable to the French and to the papacy and was kind of against the Spanish. And the Pope showed that leniency towards France in the course of the Thirty Years' War as a whole because he stopped financing the Holy Roman Emperor's troops, claiming that the Papal States didn't have the money to do so. And he was actually right about that. The Papal States were very much in debt. Nevertheless, the very pro-Spanish side of the College of Cardinals was furious at the Pope. And Cardinal Borgia, yes, you know that name, same family, Cardinal Borgia stood up and accused him of being a traitor to Catholicism. The Pope responded by requiring the cardinals who opposed him to leave Rome and to return to their diocese. There was even talk of a conspiracy on his life that the Pope had to kind of try and deal with. But it was a sign of a lack of popularity and a lack of support within the College of Cardinals. Only later in his papacy did the Pope return to supporting the emperor when Sweden finally got involved in the Thirty Years' War, and it looked like it would turn the tide in favor of the Protestants. Now, the war would continue for the rest of his papacy and expenses from the war. This one and another one, which we'll talk about soon, really did hurt the papal finances. But before that, we have to talk about a couple of other things. One was the Pope's work at continuing the reform of the liturgy after the Council of Trent. He published updated missals and ceremonials, which were really great and needed. But he also inserted himself into the reform of the liturgy. He thought that the old Latin hymns and the breviary were not really great modern poetic style. So he revised a bunch of them and had them published. And his poems were okay, but they weren't really as good as the original. They were in accord with the style at the time, but they weren't really that great in the long run. These hymns remained in the breviary up until fairly modern times. And the impact of that poetry still affects us today. The most notable case that you may have heard of comes from the Advent hymn, The Creator of the Stars of Night. You've, you've heard that hymn before, I'm sure. The original Latin text was Conditor Alme Siderum, and Urban translated it and changed it to Creator Alme Siderum, which is where we get the title Creator of the Stars of Night. The English translation is based more on Urban's version than on the original. Pope Urban also continued the work of supporting and directing missionary priests. To help with this, he founded a university specifically for the mission countries in Rome, which we know today as the Pontifical Urban University, or the Urbanianum. He tried to sort out the rivalries between different religious orders in the missions, but he was not always successful. The biggest failure in this regard actually surrounds the mission in China. The Jesuit father, Matteo Ricci, had made huge inroads in the courts of the Chinese emperor, and the Jesuits had exclusive rights to be missionaries in the Far East. And they were making their way steadily at the progress of converting the Chinese court to Catholicism. But in the 1630s, the Pope allowed other religious orders, who were not necessarily as open-minded, into the missionary field, which led to a conflict which will outlast Pope Urban VIII and eventually, and unfortunately, do harm to the prospect of a full evangelization of China. And with that, we have to return to war, because at the end of the papacy of Urban VIII, in the early 1640s, the Pope began fortifying extensively the city of Rome, even more than he had done before. The Pope got in a dispute with his neighbor, the Duke of Parma, a member of the Farinese family, over a small duchy called Castro on the border of the Papal States. 
The Pope wanted it for his family and for the Papal States, since Castro was a strategically important area and provided a lot of the grain that the Papal States ate. But negotiations over it went nowhere and eventually led to war between the two sides. And the war proceeded to just increase the debts of the Papal States and didn't really result in a clear victory for either side. No one really made serious gains. Kept just going back and forth. And in 1644, the papal forces led by the Pope's cardinal nephew were defeated, and his nephew barely escaped with his life, and peace had to be signed. The Pope was pretty disappointed, and his health degraded further than it already had. He had had a series of small strokes starting in around 1638, which were probably exacerbated by the stress of the war. By 1644, he had much more removed from the daily activities of the papacy due to his health. And on July 29, 1644, he died. The Roman people were somewhat happy, and they tried to destroy a statue of him sculpted by Bernini, but they were unable to do so. He clearly was not very popular at the time of his death, and he left the Papal States in serious debt and as losers in a war. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and he was succeeded by Pope Innocent X, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.